0: could tell Just like an old time movie About a ghost from a wishing well In a castle dark Or a fortress strong with chains
1: You're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. To tax or not to tax? As lawmakers prepare to go home and call the session all pow tomorrow, we step back to look at how the tax proposals fared. We turn to Tom Yamachika, head of the uh, Tax Foundation of Hawaii, who has been tracking and testifying on the many proposals, many which were bold and look promising. He goes down the list on winners and losers. Yamachika was underwhelmed at what lawmakers delivered on broad tax relief. And the window to tax visitors to help with park impacts closed shut. Remember the green fee?
2: There were several proposals, not only from the governor, but from from various other legislators to implement the visitor green fee. The devil, however, is always in the details. If it's not possible to slap an entry fee or a departure fee when people come at the airport, which, which they can't, then the details become a lot more difficult so the green impact fee bills basically revolved around we will give visitors a license duration of one year to see our parks beaches forests so forth for fifty dollars and the question then becomes okay well how do you enforce this and and really nobody had any good answers
1: it seemed like a good idea but the practicality of rolling it out problematic very much.
2: I mean, what's going to happen? I mean, are, are there going to be like scuba divers popping up next to swimmers and saying,
1: hey, okay, give me your license?
2: Yeah, no, it, it got pretty far, but ultimately the conference committee couldn't reach agreement and down it went.
1: And there was also a bill having to do with production credit for the film industry. Yeah,
2: there was a bill that started off as a proposal for a workforce incentive rebate program for smaller productions because you know the production credit that we have now it is really difficult to get through in terms of paperwork and accounting and reporting. So some people wanted to establish a simple, simpler way of doing that. The problem is that when the bill went through the session, they got loaded up with a few other things, including a film studio credit and some provisions changing very substantially the way the production credit works. And of course, so this all happened without any public hearing on those new provisions. So as it turned out, the new provisions were very problematic. They had constitutional issues, and they were really something that even DBED said, you know, we've got problems with this. So and ultimately what happened is the House said, okay, we can't stomach this. They didn't even appoint conferees, so that that bill went down in flames.
1: And we did hear lots of talk about trying to help out our teachers and giving them some kind of a tax credit, you know, the, the money that they take out of their own pocket.
2: Yes, there were a lot of things that happened to that one. A teacher tax credit bill was originally introduced by the Green Administration as part of their affordability plan. When the first half of the legislative session kind of wound up to a close, the uh, the money committee in the House basically split the provisions in that bill amongst uh, three bills and sent those over to the Senate. The Senate, at the end of its consideration, reshuffled the Credits among bills yet again, and the teacher's tax credit wound up in its own bill, House Bill 1327. At that point, neither chamber looked at it. Nobody appointed any conferees. So they apparently put the provisions in House Bill 1327 to
1: die. Of the bills that did pass, what do you think are the big gains? Probably the most
2: uh, significant bill is what was one of the ones that was left of the uh, Green Affordability Plan. Now as, as introduced, it proposed enhancements in several different tax credits as, as well as broad-based tax relief. So what they wanted to do was broaden the brackets, increase the personal exemption amount, increase the standard deduction amount, something that hasn't been done in many years. The governor also proposed indexing these amounts for inflation like IRS in many states do. So although it started off as Senate Bill 1347 and House Bill 1049, things were shuffled around, as I, as I just mentioned, regarding the teacher with the teacher's tax credit bill.
1: They they did the same thing.
2: They cut it up. Yes, they cut it up. What the conference committee did to 954 was basically they ditched all of the broad-based relief provisions. They left a few credit enhancements in there. So there were substantial enhancements in the household independence care services credit, the refundable earned income tax credit, and the refundable food excise tax credit, but only for five years. Everything in the bill drops dead on January 1st, 2020. And by the way, the inflation indexing didn't survive either. Those dropped off. Those dropped off. So what was left was, you know, in my humble opinion, kind of underwhelming. We had high hopes for broad-based tax relief, but we didn't get it. And not only that, but it's going to be kind of a cruel joke on you know, people with lesser incomes who can take advantage of these credits, because the credits are going to go away in five years.
1: Yeah, I guess there's the hope that they would extend it. But that's always tough to do.
2: Yeah. I mean, perhaps what was passed was better than nothing uh, in that, you know, people can come back in and, and, and try to get the life of these credit enhancements extended or having the sunset provisions cut entirely. But so far, uh, what we have is just five years of, of credit enhancement, no broad based tax relief.
1: So maybe not enough. To be meaningful. Of course, it depends
2: on who you talk to. But, you know, given the fact that we have a lot of people jumping on planes and going elsewhere because of failure to make ends meet, tough to see how this is going to make big difference to a lot of people.
1: Right. So is it enough to make people stay?
2: don't know. Yeah. We'll find out.
1: Uh, what else did you see as a, a positive? We did get the, a passage
2: of what's called the state tax deduction workaround. So how that works is this. For federal tax purposes the state and local tax deduction was capped at $10,000 between 2018 and 2025. We didn't adopt that for state purposes, but for federal purposes it was adopted and for people who own businesses, you know like small businesses uh, in a partnership or a S corporation for example, the businesses don't pay the tax because of the pass-through provisions of, you know, being a partnership or being an S corporation. The tax is paid by the owners and because the deductibility of that tax is limited, there's uh, some consternation uh, that, that's, that's been happening because owners have to pay their share of the business's tax and they can't deduct it, not any, any amount over $10,000. So what a lot of states started doing is they're saying, okay, we'll make it so that the business entity, the partnership with the S corporation can pay tax itself. And there's no limit on what a partnership or S-Corporation can deduct, the $10,000 just applies to individuals. And it turns out that the IRS said, well, yeah, that works, because they had a ruling going back several decades, and they figured they couldn't couldn't get around it. So they said that strategy works. So several states started adopting state tax deduction workaround provisions like that, and uh, ours did too. The only disadvantage is that it doesn't apply to sole proprietors and single-member LLCs, namely uh, business entities that are owned by one person as opposed to two or more.
1: This is one I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around, but of the people that it stands to benefit, what are the numbers? Uh, I'm not
2: sure of the revenue impact, but... we do know that like 75% of businesses are in either partnership or S corporation form so it's a a very very popular tool for small businesses
1: and then the final one I know the GET surcharge particularly for Maui they want to use that money for infrastructure for housing instead of transportation
2: yes so the issue about uh, using the uh, surcharge for where things other than transportation comes from a constitutional provision that we have and it basically says that if you want to make the counties do something you have to do it by what we call general laws and that means that it has to apply to all counties equally now you can make distinctions along the lines of all population for example but you can't say oh you know Maui's got to do this and mm-hmm. Hawaii's got to do this and Kauai's got to do that
1: when the GET surcharge was first enacted uh, it was meant to go for transportation
2: Yeah, because the idea was that it was for Honolulu Rail. So they enacted a provision in, what is it, 2006 that said... Honolulu, you will use this for rail only. And of course, because it had to be a general law, they said, all right, other counties, you, you can use this for transportation. So the issue we have now is the last county to get on this surcharge bandwagon, it's the county of Maui, they haven't adopted the surcharge yet, and they want to, but they don't want to use it for transportation. They want to use it for housing infrastructure. They went to the legislature and said, well, can you can you open the window for us and can you let us do this? And the legislature basically said, all we right, right, we'll, we'll let you do it, but but then, to make it fair to everybody, we will, you know, open it up to other counties as well. You know, if you, if any of the other counties want to use the surcharge proceeds for housing infrastructure, they can do that.
1: No, anything else? Any takeaway? Like you said, you, you know, we did start out with good ideas.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, there were there were a lot of ideas. I mean, we had thirty one hundred bills this session, which is a huge number, and uh, you had your share of good ideas and your not so good ideas, and you know. Following all of them was, you know, a tough process. But you know, our organization and several others, you know, with different focuses, had to kind of basically wade through all of that. Hopefully, you know, at least for them, some good ideas bubbled up and passed. Like, for example, there was a bill to help the doctors by giving them an exemption for medical services, which which was needed, like for the you know smaller clinics on the Nibir Islands, especially because. They don't have a lot of doctors there, and we have we have a physician shortage in the state generally. Now the the, the GET exemption kind of got stopped cold in the house because House Finance didn't hear it, uh, but the but the legislature did adopt some increases in the payments that they would make for Medicaid services.
1: Right, the reimbursements. Right. So so they got some relief, and
2: so maybe that's a good first step.
1: Uh, That was Tom Yamachika, head of the Tax Foundation of Hawaii, talking to us about the fate of the many tax proposals that lawmakers took up this session. Uh, State lawmakers will wind up the people's business tomorrow. civil beat reporter Stuart Yurton has been poking around the halls in the world of condo living and today he looks at how legislation proposed for this session fared good morning Stuart
3: good morning Catherine
1: yeah so you have been uh, kind of doing a deep dive on all issues related to condominiums and, and it's an important one because so many people live in high rises
3: well yeah that's true I mean we have um Upward of three hundred thousand people living in condominiums or under the uh, governance of condominium uh, property regimes here in Hawaii. It's a lot of a lot of the population. About one in four people, and um, again, eighteen hundred associations. Uh, something like 170,000 units. So it's a lot of people living under what amount to private governments.
1: Yeah, and there are only more uh, condos, you know, going up as we survey the landscape. Uh, so, yeah, so so how did we do this session?
3: Well, not a lot was passed. Again, one of the more promising things for uh, the condo owner advocates was a bill that would have made condo association elections really more like uh, local, state, and federal elections in that they would be kind of one person, one vote, and would allow absentee ballots. Um, Instead, it's a very complicated proxy system that really favors incumbents.
1: Well, it just seems like that would be a no-brainer. I mean, if we're doing our elections, you know, like that, uh, I think even our neighborhood board elections, why not condos?
3: Well, right. That was the question. The answer seems to be that the incumbents, at least the people who testified against it, <clears throat> excuse me, were largely incumbents and um, professionals who work for the incumbents. So uh, they really opposed it. They said the system isn't broken, no need to fix it. And again, uh, the situation is going to be, well, it's fairly hard to vote these folks out of their positions.
1: Okay. And if that was an easy one to deal with, (laughs) what else was in the hopper?
3: Well, the other one was a a condominium ombudsman who would have been kind of an intermediary between um, uh, condo owners and the associations when a dispute arises. Other states have these. We've heard good reviews from... Uh, Nevada, uh, their ombudsman office. Um, We know Florida has one, Virginia. Again, other states do this. Hawaii um, isn't ready for that yet. Uh, Instead, there is a mediation process, but people say it just doesn't work that well for the owners.
1: Yeah, and, you know, we often hear a lot of uh, condo issues, you know, lawsuits uh, being filed in the news. Um, You know, I mean, were they looking to somehow, you know, rein that in?
3: Well, there was a uh, bill last year that would have reined in a situation that allows associations, uh, when they bring legal action or even enlist lawyers to write cease and desist letters against uh, condo owners, the current law allows the association to charge the person getting the letter, the owner, uh, for the legal fees, um, uh, charge by the lawyer. So, again, if a lawyer writes you a letter saying you're doing something wrong, you'll have to pay the fees for the lawyer doing it. Uh, That law, that was last year. Mm -hmm. That bill also didn't pass, and there was nothing introduced this year. You know, The the only thing that really seems to have happened is the main thing was there was a bill that said we're going to set up a task force to study the condominium statute. And so, again, some people say it's a stalling technique. The Speaker of the House, I spoke to him, he said, uh, well, no, it might be time to actually review the whole condominium law. Uh, So that could happen. But, again, how quickly and what relief it provides for a lot of people um, really is the big question.
1: Yeah, I think the House Speaker lives in a condo, (laughs) so he should kind of know some of this
3: (laughs) <laughs> right. Well, and again, I think the one of the things that's lost in this is that while a, the vast majority of condominium boards probably operate really well, even if they are only say 10% that are bad boards, uh, not really working well for the people, that could still be 180 boards representing, you know, hundreds of people.
1: Yeah. So it it definitely is something that uh, uh we need to do something about, but yeah, Who knows how long it's going to take before we get, you know, some meaningful change. Interesting.
3: Well, we'll see. Thank you, Catherine.
1: Okay. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. You can read his stories on condo issues by going to civilbeat.org. this is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. (laughs) Onihoa. hoa, ole hua, oni hao, o ka
3: o o o moloka'i,
0: o lanai,
3: o ma'u, o o hawaii.
1: In today's Backyard Quiz, we are remembering the plants that Polynesians brought with them when they first came to the islands. Those canoe plants were bulbs and seedlings that the settlers prized for their value as medicinal and edible plants. Today, we're looking at a member of the philodendron family that's uh, closely related to taro. This one even looks similar, but its bla- leaf blades point upward while taro, uh, taro's leaves tend to point downward. It's actually an herb that can reach a height of 16 feet with stems more than 4 feet long. Leaves are green and shiny, and at their largest, they are 4 feet long and 3 feet wide. The plant is edible, but it has to be cooked, and it was only eaten by ancient Hawaiians when food was scarce. It had medicinal uses too and was also mixed with other plants for use as a dye. Today we're looking for its name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HVR.
4: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neirete Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. Neiretehawaii.com.
1: School and Pahala Elementary School principal Sharon Beck was recently named the recipient of the Masayuki Tokioka Excellence in School Leadership Award. She's been the head of school for the past 17 years. The rural Ka'u district on the southern end of Hawaii Island is the Department of Education's largest geographic district in the state. Many students there are challenged with long commutes coupled with limited access to resources and opportunities. The conversations Russell Subiano talked to Beck about how she addresses her school's unique challenges.
5: How does it feel to have your blood, sweat, and tears and hard work recognized in this way?
6: Oh, well, if you say it that way, like that, it makes me tear up. It's wonderful because I actually started my teaching career here in 1992, and so my girls were raised here, went to the Kau school, graduated, and are doing very well. The team of people we have here at school, we just click as a family, and it's just. I'd love for people to come see our school because amazing things are happening.
5: I feel like this is a big deal because you're in a rural area with some unique challenges. And I think it's especially impressive when we see principals of small schools in rural parts of our state get recognized for their work. It seems easy for the big schools, you know, like Hilo High School, Kalakehe, to get accolades because their their enrollment seems to give them access to more resources. What kind of unique challenges do you face in Kau?
6: First, our geographic area, the size of it, like you were saying, our students have far distances to come to Pahala, so Ocean View is probably like 40 minutes away once they get to the highway, but many of our students are way up in the subdivision, so just getting down to where the bus stop is to get here, they leave their house before six o'clock in the morning. And so I'm just really happy when they are able to get here. Some other challenges are, are just employment. You know, we want our kids to have some workforce development, but there's very limited close by for them to access. You know, just even seeing careers like engineers or journalists, right? It's hard out here in Kau. So we have to think out of the box. How do we broaden the horizon of our kids so they can dream? It's always just trying to find those connections and those community partners to help us.
5: And I know that the Ka'u District is, I think is DOE's largest school district. Residents there, I think about 22% of the residents, I think are below the poverty line or do struggle financially. When the school's faced with those kinds of challenges, what kind of systems do you build and put in place to to overcome those kinds of challenges?
6: Okay, so about 85, 86% of our students are what would you call low economic status. So we at the school, we, I have developed a position. It's called a student success coach. And she oversees our McKinney-Vento, our homeless students, our migrant ed students, the ones that travel for work, the agriculture and fishing. So we have actually a center here on campus with food, clothes, rubber slippers, hygiene. So the students know where they can come and get if they need things. Oh, we have wash machines and showers for them to use also. We do lots of home visits. We have, in the past two years, we revamped our agriculture. So we have over an acre of farm. We did like 10,000 pounds of vegetables wow. in the past year. So we do deliver a lot of food to our students. We also take it to the senior center. And then the hub in Na'alehu where they make the free meals for the community, we also deliver vegetables there. We have hydroponics, soil. We also now have pigs and rabbits. We're working with the county. We have a grant with them to do hydroponics. So we'll get that started we want to teach our kids sustainability and you know knowing ocean view not doesn't have much soil teaching the kids how to do the hydroponics on aquaponics so they can help sustain their families is our goal
5: i think many times when someone arrives into a challenging situation it seems easy to kind of just try to mold the new situation in the way that they've done in the past but it sounds like you and your team are very adaptable, that you've adapted to the needs of the community. Is that something that you did consciously? Is that just part of your DNA?
6: I guess I've always been like one of those problem solvers, like how do we make it better? And I was just blessed with an amazing team the past couple years that we really heard from the community and what they wanted and what they wanted to see our school be. And then we started getting great partners with Hawaii Community College and we do dual credit An amazing thing that we did in the past year is that we have a memorandum of agreement with Hawaii Community College where our courses, we run them with the professor at HCC, and when our students complete those assessments and we send them to them, they receive the credit from HCC and they receive our school credit. So last year, we had, say, 17 students walk the line at HCC receiving a certificate of agriculture or a certificate of landscaping our kids are very transient and we want to believe that when they leave us they have something on their resume that can help them to keep moving on I don't know if I answered your question about adaptability I guess it's just doing what's right for the student
5: I think you did answer it I just feel like this situation your your leadership at your school is an example of how schools can be adaptable to the community that there's no single way to run a school or to teach students it's possible to adapt to the needs and when i think back to how the pandemic impacted uh, schools across the state it seems like the pandemic exposed just how important high-speed internet connectivity is to learning in today's classroom for many people who live or work in highly populated areas you know we have access to high-speed internet sometimes it's taken for granted can you share how important digital equity is especially to small rural communities and schools in Kau.
6: Oh, definitely. Well, really hit us during the pandemic, like you said, and when we moved to Google Classroom to get the education to our kids, then we realized in Ocean View, there was no connectivity. So we had the, the little Wi-Fi, I guess they're called. Mm-hmm. Well, then we couldn't tell if it's AT&T or Verizon. So my staff and I, we were up there around Ocean View, driving around to see what even what kind of Wi-Fi would work for our students up there. It was just kind of amazing because of the topography, it just changed. You know, one time is AT&T. So we really struggled with that. So we actually worked with St. Jude's Church. and We created a hub, which we still continue there. They have the free Wi-Fi, so we were able to set up a classroom there. Because, like I said, some students, if they can't make it to the bus, they can't make it to school. So having online access to their education is so important. And many of our students also, their second language And so they might need extra time to be able to do their work. So being able to go home and access more work to work on is so important, but many of them don't have the access to, like you said, Wi-Fi or the device.
5: I'm always interested in how a person got to where they are. Is where you are today where you intended to be when you first started in education?
6: No, I'm going to say no. I moved here in 1992, like I said, as a special ed teacher for Kra'u High. I fell in love with the community, the people, and I just really wanted to be part of the leadership. So that's when I went back to school, I went to UH Hilo to get my grad degree, and I became the vice principal at Na'alehu for three years and then came back to Kauhai. It's just I i only wanted to be principal of Kauhai.
5: I grew up on the Big Island. I understand the attraction to creating a life in a small town. Can you talk about, your town and your school and the community and why they mean so much to you.
6: I guess I moved here when I was so young that they helped raise me. They adopted me into this community and took care of me. When I had my kids, they they helped me raise my kids. It's just an amazing place to be. Oh, I get emotional.
5: <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, no problem. Didn't mean to to strike no, no, any no, any no, chords or it, anything.
6: kau means everything to me, to my blood.
5: Yeah, I, I feel you. I feel I feel the same way about Waimea. It's it's kind of just in my DNA. And I know that this award that you received comes with some money for the school. Can you talk a little bit about how that money will benefit students yeah, at the school?
6: Well it's actually we'll be the first in Hawaii to use this technology. I heard about it from a te- rural area of Texas. It's called Olivia. And it eliminates the need for continuous internet connectivity to deliver the instruction, the learning experiences to students. So this device, as a school, we put our Google Classroom, we can put libraries, anything we use, any kind of platform we use at school goes on this device. The student can take that device home without having internet and connect to their phone or another device that we can send home with them and they can access their curriculum. And then when they get back into an internet area, it reboots.
5: Congratulations again on receiving this award.
6: Thank you. I really appreciate that, Russell.
5: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk story with me this morning.
6: Oh, thank you. And you have a great day.
1: That was Sharon Beck, the award-winning principal of Kau High School in Pahala Elementary on the Big Island. She was talking with H.R.'s Russell Subiano.
4: Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin May 22nd. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Today on The Daily, for the past two months,
2: a single lawmaker has prevented Democrats from carrying out their agenda in Congress. Today, my colleague, Annie Carney, on the growing political crisis surrounding Senator Dianne Feinstein. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this
4: afternoon at 1.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from BAMP Project, presenting the Doobie Brothers in their 50th anniversary tour, 7 p.m. this Friday at the Waikiki Shell. Tickets at bampproject.com.
1: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and it's time now for your Manu Minute. The endemic alai'ula is one of a handful of subspecies of the common gallinule, but there's nothing common about this water bird. Listen to their calls thanks to the Mokale Library of the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart.
0: The alai'ula also known as the Hawaiian moorhen or Hawaiian gallinule, is a subspecies of waterbird that until recently lived in low elevation wetlands across the Hawaiian Islands, but is now found only on Kauai and Oahu. They stand about a foot tall and are mostly dark slate gray with a striking flame red frontal shield that extends above their mostly red bill. Their legs are long and yellow with especially long toes that help them walk over mud and floating vegetation, where they forage for seeds, mollusks, and insects. The Alai'ula's voice can be described as a series of chicken-like cackling calls and croaks, and has traditionally been considered by some to be a bad omen. Alai'ula are a federal and state-listed endangered subspecies with most recent population estimates indicating there's fewer than a thousand of these birds left. The destruction of their wetland habitats, as well as unleashed dogs and feral cats, have been some of the biggest causes of their decline. However, it has been shown that the restoration of wetland patches can play a big role in increasing Alaiula populations. They're very secretive birds, but with patience can be seen Darting among low-lying vegetation near these wetlands. Alai'ula are very important in Hawaiian mythology because they held the secret of making fire and would not reveal it to the demigod Maui. In one version of the Mo'olelo, after numerous threats by Maui to show him the secret, an Alai'ula finally revealed that fire could be produced by rubbing a stick against a dry branch of the hao tree. Because it held out the secret for so long, Maui punished the bird by burning its face with the stick, leaving the red shield on its forehead that is so distinctive today. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology.
4: Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering nature tours on Hawaii Island with adventures including swimming in private waterfalls, Mauna Kea stargazing, and exploring active volcanoes. More at hawaii-forest.com.
1: Time now for your backyard quiz answer. Today we looked at one of the canoe plants brought to the islands by early Polynesian settlers. It's related to taro with broad green leaves and the tubers contain calcium, oxalate and are inedible unless cooked. Uh, the plant's primary value to Hawaiians wasn't as a food source, though. In fact, it was only eaten when food was scarce. Rather, the plant's medicinal uses were more common, such as wrapping a person in its leaves to induce sweating. And artisans of the leaves could be um, mashed, mixed with mud, and used as a dye uh, for decorations on ceremonial ipu, or bottle gourds. We asked you the name, the kalo relative that is part of the philodendron family. Today's mystery plant is known in Hawaiian as ape, in English commonly called elephant's ear. And congrats to Orlo Steele from Hilo. You got it right. That's today's quiz, and if you have an idea for one you'd like to share, write to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Mānoa, offering a Master of Science program in Travel Industry Management. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. Help shape the future of Hawaii Public Radio. Nominate yourself for our Community Advisory Board. As a volunteer, you'll represent your neighborhood and advise HPR on programming, events, and outreach. If you live on Lanai, Molokai, Maui, Kauai, or the Big Island, we especially want you to apply. Apply by May 31st at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com.
1: This year marks the 120th anniversary of the Spanish-American War. It was called A Splendid Little War, short-lived with little bloodshed. To mark that point in history, the Smithsonian's portrait gallery unveiled a powerful new exhibit. It's called 1898 Imperial Visions and Revisions and it runs till early next year. It attempts to fill in the missing indigenous perspectives. What did the native people of Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Philippines, Hawaii and Guam gain or lose in the process of the transfer of power from Spain to America in, ni- in 1898. Empire or Republic? The exhibit challenges you to exhibit uh, to examine the political history of America, given its own struggle to win independence from Britain in the Revolutionary War. HPR was there for a media tour before the exhibit opened this past weekend. It includes a portrait of Queen Liliuokalani. Here's Kate Clark LeMay, co-curator and historian at the National Portrait Gallery.
7: When you think of the War of 1898, usually people have this sort of one narrative, you know, the so-called splendid little war. And that is exactly what this Harper's Weekly pictures. Um, If you come close, you can see the eagle whose wings are creating like a halo around the Capitol. Within the crest of arms are the different uh, new uh, possessions of the United States. In 1901, they were celebrating the inauguration of President McKinley's second term. Uh, but like the commissioners from Cuba and the Philippines and Puerto Rico, Queen Liliuokalani Kalani from Hawaii was coming, making many trips to Washington DC to negotiate for her people. And in 1908, this portrait was taken in Washington DC um, during a trip that she made to ask for reparations, uh, for payment of the land that was seized from her without payment. And in this particular trip, the newspaper reports that she asked for $50,000, which to today's standards is about $200,000, but I've heard of accounts that she was owed up to 20 million. Um, So it was a very long fight that the queen maintains for her entire life um, to ask for justice for her people.
1: For the past six years, LeMay and Ta'ina Carrigal, curator of painting, sculpture, and Latino art and history at the National Portrait Gallery, led the effort to better tell this story. It was a narrative that they felt was missing in the halls of this federal institution. Carrigal hails from Puerto Rico, and Kate LeMay has a keen interest in naval maritime history. Thanks to the duo and their staff, the exhibit helps us to see how the island's political struggles differed and yet were the same.
8: This was a turning point in U.S. history, but also in the history of all the lands that the United States claimed, right? And so in those lands, 1898 has historical resonance. People know what it means. People understand this transition. But here, it's not a year that is at the forefront of public memory, and we wanted to bring it forward as, as an important year for people to understand a history that still has relevance today. For me, as a Puerto Rican and as a specialist in Latino history, you know, as I remember, the very first few times I walked through the museum after being appointed to my job, thinking to myself, "Wow, the main year through which I relate to the United States as a Puerto Rican is not in any way pinpointed through these hallways. There are very, very vague allusions to it. There were only two portraits at the time, Dewey's portrait and Leonard Wood's portrait, and that was pretty much it, you know? And I thought to myself, how how can you be charged with representing a population that is not there in the collection if you don't address the historical chapter that puts that population in relation with the US, right? And that's the case for Puerto Ricans, but it's the case, you know, it's a question that Cubans could ask, that Chamorros could ask that Hawaiians could ask, uh, Filipinos could ask. And so we thought it's really important to address it. And so here we are.
1: I guess I think of this exhibit as being so important now because the US is fortifying its position in the Indo-Pacific. Mm-hmm. And to kind of look back at this history, it's just, it's fascinating.
7: It's, it has a 3 line of, of consequences that many people are aware of. Uh, particularly in the Pacific and some people aren't and it's sort of an afterthought for people who maybe have never been to Guam or maybe have never been to Hawaii or the Philippines and as a someone who's interested in military history I like how art helps animate that history I like that it helps us remember it's bringing to life some of these people who otherwise might have been lost you know to to this history. Also, you know the, the fact that the United States is renewing its relationship with the Philippines in Subic Bay, I, I find that very interesting. The fact that the. US is expanding its military installations in Guam, I recognize that this is a painful history and it's not an easy history. And so we should be talking about it.
1: At the start of the tour, you took us to a portrait and you said it was a metaphor kind of for this exhibit. I mean, this was the splendid little war, the Spanish-American War, but that year is just so pivotal.
8: Absolutely, yes. That was a portrait by Francisco Oyer, who is a Puerto Rican painter, very important in the second half of the 19th century and early 20th century. And it's a portrait of William McKinley, who was the president of the United States as the U.S. went to war with Spain. And so what I find fascinating is that Oller is mainly known as an artist who conveyed Puerto Rican identity through his artwork. And here he's painting a portrait of a U.S. political figure. And he has in his hand a map of Puerto Rico that is dated July 25th, 1898. So that's the year that, that's the day that u.s vessels arrive in the bay of guanica and that the war arrives to puerto rico you know and so oyer recorded that moment and at the same time if you look at the work you can see a metaphor not just for the process of the transition of power from spain to the u.s in puerto rico but for the expansion process for the u.s If you replace that map by the map of the Hawaiian archipelago or the Philippine archipelago or Cuba or Guam, you can get the sense that the future of these lands laid in the hands of the United States. And that's just powerful, I think.
1: And the connection with the Native Americans I thought was fascinating too, you know, that that a lot of these officers trained in those early wars
7: they did, yeah, I thought that was fascinating too. We recognize that the 13 colonies, you know, expanded at the at the cost of other people, other indigenous people to North America. And really you can't talk about U.S. expansion without addressing the Indian Wars and the resistance to that expansion. And the fact that the U.S. military officers were learning the ropes of colonization within their own continent, and then took those lessons overseas, that was sort of like a light bulb moment for me. And you know, other historians are addressing this, like Catherine Bjork has a really good book called Prairie Imperialism out. So there's some new research that's being done to kind of uncover these chapters of military history that I think this show reflects.
1: And I don't know if if you have a particular favorite image or document in this exhibit. I mean, you you folks have spent years working on this.
8: Yes, that is a tricky question because I have so many (laughs) artworks that I really like. And, of course, the Oger painting of McKinley comes to mind immediately. But also that photograph uh, that our curatorial assistant, Carolina Maestre, found in the Eugenio Maria de Osto's papers at the Library of Congress. This very blurry photograph, and we actually have just a reproduction of it here, but it's a very blurry photograph that captures representatives from Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Cuba, who came before the ratification of the Treaty of Paris to Washington DC to try to have a say in the process to try to have agency when, as we know, the Treaty of Paris had just been signed in December between Spain and the U.S., deciding upon all of these lands without any representation from them. So it's a very powerful testament to this collective moment of worry. And, and it's a photograph that hasn't had much circulation, you know, even though the presence of these people was documented at the time in the press. There were no visuals surrounding that presence, and so that's just an incredible document.
1: And what about you, Kate?
8: Well,
7: I traveled to Hawaii twice, and I met with people, scholars, curators, people who have real history you know, in Hawaii, and I learned about the queen and that portrait, the Grand Manor portrait of her by William Cogswell from 1892. It was so meaningful to be able to organize that loan, to work with the Hawaiian community on it. And now she's in our galleries, and I recognize that this is her, a continuation of her diplomacy, a continuation of her voice in Washington, D.C., being heard and being put forward from a federal museum. And I know that that is very significant in, in the long history of the Hawaiian royal government.
1: Well, I thank the two of you and your team for putting this show together because I think it provides context to areas whose histories may have been glossed over in previous books or shows or exhibits. So I think it does provide a really valuable story for these different islands and its place in the U.S. history. Anything else that you want to just add the people out there the show can't go to these places it just is so marvelous that it's going to be here for a while but anything else you just want to say to the audience that you think this might resonate with
8: absolutely well we want to thank the many people with whom we consulted in Guam in the Philippines in Hawaii in Puerto Rico in Cuba and here in the United States as well there were so many generous scholars who helped us understand these histories and the nuances to them, who directed us to artworks and important documents that had to be seen here. And and actually, we had the fortune of recording a audio component to the exhibition that will be accessible online and also through our galleries. There are certain artworks with QR codes that people can scan to hear the voices of many of those scholars. So we're incredibly grateful to them for their participation and for their support of our exhibition and for the outreach uh,
1: for folks who may be able to hopefully access some of this online there's a book coming out later this year there is a book coming out we're really proud of it we worked
7: hard published with princeton university press it'll be available in september it features prefaces from people like Hiloha johnston and neil weir so these are two people that Hiloha lives in Hawaii, and Neil is from Guam. We wanted to make sure that we featured the voices of people whose histories are intermingled with with this 1898 history.
1: So if there are folks that are coming to D.C. over the next 10 months, then this would be the opportunity to to see these stories and hear the stories.
7: Yep, and you can buy the book if you can't come. There's also our website that Taina mentioned, and it has its audio components of experts like Noe Noe Silva, like Tori Latia, like Hiloha Johnston as well.
8: Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you so much.
1: We just heard from co-curators, Kate LeMay and Taina Karagal. So if you find yourself in our nation's capital, that exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery runs till next February. We have to go now, but up tomorrow we continue exploring the issues around the Smithsonian exhibit. We hear reaction from Native Hawaiians who were on hand for the opening. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.